Bonjour. Welcome back. Bonjour. Welcome back. I mean, it's been a week for for them. Yeah. <laughs> but it's been a few minutes for us because we're, we're, we're doing all, we're like, you know how people binge listen? We're binge recording. We're binge recording. <laughs> so bonjour and bienvenue to Battle Royale, a podcast where we review, rate, and rank all the kings and emperors of France from Clovis to Napoleon III. You're, you're now confused because I said Clovis then. Yeah, you really confused. Said, you should say Clovis first, okay? Don't, get, don't confuse it's people. Good, it's, okay, it's good for the flow of the sentence if I say Clovis, but technically this episode is Clovis the first because there are multiple Clovis. I guess. Clovis, Clovi. Clovisians. So this week we're talking about Clovis the first, who is the first king of all the Franks. And I know absolutely nothing about him, so you will be joining me in learning about him. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people know about this king. If um, they did, I'd be pretty surprised. Yeah. I mean, I think French people probably know, like, the name, but I don't know. Actually, I'm pretty clueless about how much French history French people do know, like, of this, like, early history. Yeah, so if you're from France and you're listening, can you tell us what you guys, like, learn in, like, in school maybe yeah. about, like... What history do you start learning from in terms of your French history? Yeah. Do you learn about the Merovingians? I would be very curious to see if you do. All right. So are we feeling good? Are we feeling fresh? Yes. Ready to go? Yes. Um, I cannot wait to learn. Can't wait. Okay. So the source that we're going to be using is our lovely friend Gregory of Tours, who wrote the Historia Francorum, the history of the Franks. Um, this is the only full account of this period. And it goes from Adam and Eve uh, in book one to, <laughs> to about uh, 590 when Gregory of Tours dies, which is about 100 years after the events we're going to talk about today. So right now he's writing about stuff that his great-grandfathers were yeah. alive for. Yeah. So it's kind of like if you had to give a recount of World War One off the top of your head. <laughs> like that's what we're reading right now. <laughs> so the Historia gets more detailed as it goes on, obviously. Um, it starts out kind of with legends, like obviously Adam and Eve, um, <laughs> and the whole story of the Franks coming from Troy and that sort of thing. So Gregory, uh, who was he? He was the Bishop of Tours, which is a city in uh, France. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> obviously. It's on the River Loire, which is one of the nicest parts of France, but which, but which was in this period that we're going to talk about a sort of uh, important strategic boundary, I suppose. It's basically the river that divides northern France from southern France, basically. So he actually wrote in a language called Latin Vulgate or Vulgar Latin, which was the language of the common people at the time. It was sort of the midway point between the evolution from Latin to modern French. So, you know, look Is at Gregory, vulgar? he's writing. Well, vulgar, <laughs> well, vulgar literally just means like of the common people. That's what vulgar means, but it's it it took on derogatory con- connotations, I suppose. Later on, yeah. So that was the language spoken by the Gauls or like the Gallo Romans, the 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 Romanized Gaulish people who lived in France at this time. And that time we're talking about is right as the Roman Empire is falling, or has just fallen, at least in the West. Gregory's account is quite fun because it's. It's very colorful. It's very like Game of Thrones. He's very, he loves all the intrigue and stuff, but he's very, very biased when it comes to basically, if you give a lot of money to Gregory's church, he's going to write a good review of you. <laughs> is, if you did anything against the church, yeah, yeah, you're not going to look that great. 
So let's get on. To, let's get on to Clovis. So the name Clovis is a Latinized form of the Germanic name Clodovec, which comes from Clod or Hlod, meaning fame and glory, and Vec or Vig, which means combat or battle. So his name means glorious battle. Oh wow! Yeah. Um, and it's actually a cognate. A cognate being like a name that has the same origin, basically. It's a cognate of a number of other names. It's a cognate of Louis, um, Ludwig, Ludovico, Luigi, and Aloysius. Oh. Yeah, they all come from this same name, Cordovec. Yeah. So we could actually call him Louis the First if we wanted to. But we're not because there's already too many Louis. Yeah, and there's actually another Louis the First. So, so we, we probably we don't want to confuse people, so we're calling him Clovis. Um, and Clovis is a pretty great name. Yeah, and that's what that's what Gregory calls him. Um, so he was born to Childric the First, the king of the Salian Franks, uh, one of the three main Frankish tribes, and to Bessina, the daughter of King Bessinus uh, of the Thuringii, who are another Germanic tribe, and. Um, we actually did that. We did like a practice review of, of Clovis's dad, which uh, will not be aired because it was garbled and horrible on our <laughs> bad microphones. <laughs> um, but I'm glad we did that practice. But do you remember the story of Childeric and Bessina? Oh, uh, yeah. He um, stole, so she was married to the Paul of it or something? No, no, no. She was married to like a random other yeah, chief some or something. But she and him fell in love. And so then when he went back like home, she was like, wait for me. Goodbye, husband. I am coming for you. And yeah. went to live in France. Yeah. So they were, well, Belgium, technically. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. The Franks at that point, they hadn't quite gone into France. They were kind of just hanging around on the border. Yeah. So according to Gregory, Childric had this like dramatic exile and he went over to live with Vecina's dad and then. Um, Love. fell in love and then after he went back to to um the franks she was like oh i w- i would cross any ocean to be with you as it happened she only had to cross the rhine river and ditch but, her husband and ditch her husband uh so she got lucky but that whole story is probably a myth it's probably like a legend um as we will see with a lot of things that happen in clovis's life a lot of it's like mm, is that real or is that a like legend it's all very Hollywood in Gregory of Tours' account. So someone should make a movie of that. Yeah. So Clovis was born around 466, which is 10 years before the fall of Rome. And he was close in age with his three sisters, um, who have really fun names. <laughs> There's Alderflader, Lantachilda, and Albaflader. They're great names, basically. Yeah. The, Not too confusing. Yeah. Well, the, the only important one, really, is Aldeflada, who became the queen of the Ostrogoths, so the Eastern Goths, by marrying Theodoric the Great, who was a great king of the Ostrogoths, who basically invaded Italy and took over Italy after Rome fell. So she became important, and she became the mother, actually, of um, Amalasuntha, who, if you know any, like, Byzantine history, she was, she became queen of Italy, and, uh, she got into all of this trouble where Justinian, the Roman emperor in the East, ended up trying to invade and claim her kingdom. But, you know, that's Totalis Rankium drama that we're not getting into because they've already talked about it. <laughs> so let's talk about Gaul. Let's talk about the state of Gaul, the messy, messy state of Gaul <laughs> when Clovis becomes king. 
which, by the way, he becomes king when he's about 15. But the kingdom seems to be doing pretty well. The the, the warriors have obviously put their trust in this kid. Um, he's been raised up on the shields, which is how the Franks crown people. Basically, you don't get a crown put on your head. You get raised up on the shields, which is like crowd surfing, but with shields. Um, <laughs> so not very comfortable. Not very comfortable. Sounds fun. I know. It does sound really cool, though, to say, like, I wish someone would re- reenact that. And you're standing up as well. You're, like, oh, wow. standing oh, standing God, upright like on the shield. Like, yeah. You know? They actually do it in Asterix. The, the chief, like, Asterix's chief is always, like, he, whenever he comes into a scene, he, it's just one guy, like, holding him up on a shield and sweating. So can someone please recreate that and share it with us of standing up on a shield yeah well there's a lot of there's a lot of paintings and stuff of this so you could probably find real life that'd be real like oh yeah i mean don't try this at home (laughs) unless you have like a few crowd of people in your should we recommend that i don't know way a lot okay so let's talk about gaul yeah gaul is divided into a few different kingdoms so in the north we have the kingdom of swasson which do you remember swasson from last episode yes i do what is it? <laughs> it's a place of a beautiful name. Well, it's named after the city of Soissons, which is sort of a bit north of Paris. And it was the last oh, yeah, it's sort of... Paris and Belgium. That yeah. Was it. it was sort of a fragment of the Roman Empire that sort of broke off. So it's ruled by Romans uh, or like Gallo-Romans, like Gaulish-Roman mixed people. And currently it's being ruled by Syagrius, who is the son of Egidius, we talked about last episode. He was a great Roman general. Um, but Syagrius Wasn't that great. Wasn't as good, as we will see um, later on. So, yeah. So, in the north, around Paris, we've got Soissons. We've got that Roman kingdom that's still there. Then we've got the Visigoths, the Western Goths. They basically own all of Spain and Aquitaine, which is, like, southern France, basically. So, huge territory the Visigoths have. Mm. The kingdom was built by a great king called Uric, yeah. not the acid, um, <laughs> um, who he's sort of nearing the end of his life when Clovis comes to power. So they've got this great old king who's built this great kingdom, mm. the Visigoths. Then we've got other Goths. We've got the Ostrogoths, who we have already spoken about. They're in Italy. An important thing to remember about all of the Goths is that they are Arians. So they belong to like a heretical sect of Christianity that like the Pope in Rome doesn't agree with. Considered as heretics. Yeah, which is kind of dodgy considering the Ostrogoths have taken over Italy and they're kind of bearing down on the popes. <laughs> they're not completely clean themselves. Yeah, the Pontifax podcast, which goes through all the popes, talks goes about into goes into detail about that. So listen to that if you want to know, if you haven't already. Yeah. Another tribe we need to talk about are the Burgundians. Um, they're in sort of like southeastern France, sort of around the Alps, like between Paris and the Alps, basically. So what modern day region is that? I don't know. Maybe it's called Burgundy or something. Oh, who thought? (laughs) Yeah. So they're like sipping some nice wine. Um, Having a good time. Yeah. And all of these places are like still Roman. Like they've still got Roman cities with like aqueducts and everything, you know, wineries and all all the Roman amenities. But there's just basically these rough dramatic tribes kind of squatting in them. (laughs) And sort of gradually the sort of Latin way of life and the Germanic way of life start to sort of blend together and merge, um, which gives us the Middle Ages. That's basically what the Middle Ages is. Melting. Yeah. It's not a complete... I mean, people used to think, like, it was a complete destruction of Rome and, like, starting again. But it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. Yeah. So then another tribe, 
uh, we, we won't talk about too much, but they're the Bretons uh, in the Northwest. Yeah, so it's sort of that little pimple that juts out of the Northwest of France into the Atlantic. I'm sure the people who live in France in that region now really love that, your description. What, being called a pimple? Yeah. Okay, what's the more flattering? It's a unicorn horn. Yes, yeah, it's, it's the unicorn, the unicorn horn. horn of France. <laughs> but their Bretons are, well, that's where Asterix lived, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bretons are kind of like the untouched Gauls. Like they're, they haven't been Romanized in the same way that the people in Soissons have. Um, so they're a bit more remote and they kind of stay independent for a very long time, like even independent from France for a very, very long time. And sort of hanging out in Germany, we've got some other Germanic tribes. We've got the Alemanni in French. Um, Germany is called Alemannia. Hmm. Germany is called something different in every language. In <laughs> German, it's called Deutschland. In here, it's called Germany. And because we use the Roman name, apparently. <laughs> and then we've got the Thuringii in, in Eastern Germany. That's where Clovis's mom is from. She's from the Thuringii. So they're sort of allies of the Franks. And then up north, sort of towards Scandinavia, but not quite Scandinavia, we've got the Saxons. And they're also, they're also sort of invading Britain at this time, becoming the Anglo-Saxons. So those are all the group of people running around that, that we need to know about. Um, so let's get into Clovis. Let's talk about his kingship. His life. Yeah, his life. Who so is he? who is he? He's an enigma. He's a mystery. Well, not anymore. Uh, <laughs> so around 481, Childeric dies and Clovis succeeds. He doesn't have any brothers, which is nice because the Franks have this annoying practice that we're going to get into where they divide everything between all their sons. So Clovis immediately around 486 CE. So he's immediately made preparations from war. And in 486, he's like, let's do this. Let's conquer some territory. Yeah. Um, he teams up with a kinsman called Ragnarkar, uh, which is a great name. Yes, that is. And he will become a king somewhere around Belgium area. Um, <laughs> or he's already a king. We're not sure. Um, but he comes up later. So the Clovis and Ragnarkar lead a Frankish force to conquer Soissons, the Roman kingdom, um, from Syagrius. Syagrius is pretty cocky at first. He's like, oh, it's just another barbarian tribe. I can deal with them like my dad dealed with them. Um, he's not his dad. He's not his dad. His army is crushed. Oh, damn. Yeah, crushed. Absolutely. And then according to Gregory, Syagrius, seeing his army crushed, <laughs> turned his back and sweat, sweat swiftly, fled swiftly <laughs> to King Alaric at Toulouse. So King Alaric is the new king of the Visigoths. So the old king, Uric, has just died, and they've got an Alaric. This is not... Is Alaric II? Yes, this is Alaric II, because there is a very famous king called Alaric I, and he's the one who sacked Rome. He's, yeah. the, he's the Gothic king who sacked Rome. He's dead. He's, uh, this is Alaric II, his great-grandson. Yeah. Yeah. So Syagrius f- flees to Alaric II, and Clovis... Sends Alaric a letter being like, can we have him back, please? (laughs) Or else, and I quote, he was to know that Clovis would make war on him for his refusal. (laughs) And Alaric immediately gives up Syagrius. He's like, I'm not fighting today. Yeah. So this is the thing we need to know about Gregory and the Goths. Gregory, our source, and the Goths. He's not a fan. Um, He thinks they're all wimps and cowards and heretics, basically. Because Gregory is a Catholic and he hates the Arians and hates the Goths, basically. Um, 
Basically anyone who isn't Catholic or Roman. Yeah. So the quote here is, um, Alaric was afraid that he would incur the anger of the Franks um, on account of Syagrius, seeing it is the fashion of the Goths to be terrified. (laughs) (laughs) And, And that will repeat as a thing. And he surrendered him in chains to Clovis's envoys. Um, then, quote, Clovis took him and gave orders to put him under guard where he had got, and when he had got his kingdom, so when he'd like secured the territory and everything, um, he ordered uh, Sagaris to be discreetly and secretly executed. Oh. Yeah. No public. Someone probably threw an axe at him. I, I, it's a firing, it's a Frankish firing <laughs> squad where they, everyone just throws axes at him. Um, pretty brutal, but no, I think they just, they just kind of slit his throat. Yeah. Um, but that's interesting that like they wait until the king has been secured, Mm. then destroy. Yeah. I guess they usually before then, you know, you think you do it beforehand, then you secure the kingdom as your own. I guess if they kill him immediately, then maybe somebody like another claimant could come up or something. Mm. I don't know. Or people wouldn't be happy or something, you know, but yeah, but this short lived Roman dynasty in Northern Gaul is over, over immediately. Um, Franks are in. Yeah, and by about 491, so we're getting close to 500, um, Clovis has finished conquering the Kingdom of Swasson. It's now firmly Frankish territory. Good. And he's only in his mid-20s. Oh, damn. Yeah. So he's like Alexander the Great, but for the Franks. Kind of. I mean, definitely not as like extensive an empire. But in terms of, like, from a young age. Starting yeah, like yeah. Good. He started... See, this is why I think Childeric was quite good, because he put Clovis in a great position yeah, to did. start off. Like he, like he left a stable, like exactly, behind, yeah, like yeah, legacy yeah. behind kind of thing. So it was easy for Clovis to just move on. Yeah. So now the Franks have the Goths to deal with. So from 492 to 496, we have the first Franco-Visigothic War, <laughs> which Gregory doesn't go into too much detail about because it's a bit of a bleak period for Clovis, unfortunately. Oh, well, he doesn't do so well. Yeah. So Gregory's kind of like, mm, didn't do so well. Um, um, let's skip over the misfortune. Yeah. So the Loire River at this point is the boundary point yeah. between the Franks and the Goths. Clovis, ca- Clovis goes over the river and captures a bit of Gothic territory and things look like they're going well. Then the Goths ally with some other Germanic tribes, uh, the Alamanni, she talked about, um, they attack the Franks from a different side. Uh, so Clovis has to run over and the Goths take back all that territory. Uh, so that's a bit unfortunate. But we've got some good news because while this war is happening, we should also turn our attention to Burgundy, the Burgundians, mm. where there lives a lovely princess. Ooh by the name of Clotilda. She will become Saint Clotilda and her legendary romance with Clovis becomes big in Merovingian literature. So there's lots of poetry and stuff. And she starts off, as every princess does, as a damsel in in distress. In a tower. Yeah. So so she's the granddaughter of King Gundevec of Burgundy. Get used to these German names, these Germanic names. And Gundebeck, as these Germanic people do, divided up his lands between his four sons, as you do. So Burgundy got all split up between, um, get ready for some names, Chilperic, Gundabad, Godemar, and Godgiesel. Oh my god, Godgiesel. <laughs> <laughs> so Clotilda's father was Chilperic. Damn it, I wish it was Godgiesel. No, it wasn't Godgiesel. Godgiesel oh, features in the story a bit. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but Clotilda's father... Chilperic was murdered with a sword by his brother Gundabad. Oh. 
Oh, well, bad. Bad. He's he's the bad. bad. He's the bad uncle. Just remember, Gundabad, bad uncle. And then Gundabad got Clotilda's mother tied a stone to her neck, and sank her in water. Oh God. Yeah. Thankfully, Clotilda and her elder sister Crona were just exiled. Crona. Yeah. <laughs> Crona. C H R O N A. Crona. Uh. Yeah. Like Kronos, but a yeah. girl. Yeah. They were just exiled. They were put somewhere, probably like a nunnery or something, where their uncle could like keep an eye on them. Crona became a nun, but Clotilda was apparently discovered by the envoys of Clovis, who were obviously putting out feelers into neighboring kingdoms to see like who young Clovis should marry. Because Clovis is now a young man, he should be married. Also around this time, even though Burgundy is an Aryan kingdom, it appears that Clotilda adopts the Orthodox Catholic faith. Um, so we're not sure if that's because of like the monastery she was put in or because Gundabad actually ends up converting to Catholicism later. Maybe it was just where the wind was blowing. Um, we're not sure, but she's, she's Catholic. So yeah, Clovis sends an embassy to Gundabad and politely asks, may I have her hand in marriage? Um, and Gundabad apparently says yes out of fear (laughs) (laughs) because everyone's heard about these Franks and how brutal they are. Yeah, and this is the point where Clovis is doing, like, well in his war against the Goths. We're seeing a bit of a trend here where neighbouring kings of large, well-established kingdoms seem to just do whatever Clovis asks. Because they're just like, nah, we cannot deal with you. It just, it just, yeah, it, it just, they have Franks, apparently, are very scary. But I don't know, how much of this is just Gregory's bias? I don't know. But they're obviously doing really well. I think maybe the other barbarians, since they converted to Christianity, have kind of lost their edge. Because uh, the Franks are still the Franks are still crazy pagans, you know. That fine spirit. Crazy swamp people, crazy swamp pagans living in Holland. Um, whereas the I don't know, maybe the maybe the um, the Goths and the Burgundians have been sort of softened a bit by like Roman habits they've picked up. Mm. I don't know. So around four ninety three. Clovis marries Clotilda of Burgundy. And when she arrives, Clovis is like, by the way, I already have a son. Uh, <laughs> this is Theodoric. <laughs> uh, Theodoric, say hi to your new snap brother. Nothing will go wrong. No, no, it, it's going it, to, those two don't have conflict. Oh, no. Good. But um, Theodoric is considered a legitimate son. So Clovis either had a previous wife that we just don't know about, or he was a polygamist. And I think it's likely that he was a polygamist or like had a concubine who was kind of like considered kind of a wife. Marriage is complicated in this period. It's not, it's not as formal as, as it is now, but we've got a more urgent problem than stepchildren. Clotilda is a Christian in a pagan land now. And she's not going to rest until everyone else is Catholic as well. (laughs) But Clovis is, like, quite tolerant of Christians. Like, he's settling in lands where, like, most of the peasants and stuff are Christians, and he lets them do whatever they want. He doesn't, like, molest the churches or anything. Oh, that's good. Yeah. But as Clotilda starts having children, she wants them to follow her faith. She wants to baptize them. And Clovis is a bit... Mm. "Mm, Yeah. Um, So Gregory has... Dialogue, women dialogue. <laughs> Scandal. This is one thing I love about Gregory is that there is female dialogue in in Gregory of Tours' work, um, and he loves Clotilda. He loves Clotilda <laughs> because she's the one who brings Christianity to the Franks. Oh, that's yeah, fun. 
And that's why she's a saint as well. So he has her telling Clovis, the gods you worship are nothing. They are graven out of stone or wood or some metal. Um, And then she goes on to rant about the wickedness of all of the Roman gods, who Gregory of Tours seems to think that the Franks worshipped. Uh, <laughs> like she's using the Latin names for gods where it's like, maybe she's talking about the Germanic gods, but just in Latin. But they, she says like Saturn and stuff. It's like, stop worshipping Saturn. And he's like, I don't worship Saturn. I worship Thor. Like, <laughs> I feel like that would have been the conversation. Yeah. So yeah, Gregory clearly doesn't know anything about the pagans. So Clovis is not immediately uh, converted by Clotilda, which is fair enough, because she basically just spat on his gods. And so Clovis re- retorts. He says, it was at the command of our gods that all things were created and came forth. And it is plain that your god has no power. But Clotilda, she's having babies. So, so we're going to have to decide what, what the babies are going to be. She pops out a boy called Ingema. And she decks out the church with, quote, hangings and curtains, unquote. Gregory goes on about the curtains in the churches. Apparently curtains are very, like, expensive and luxurious. Yeah. Yeah. So she decks out the curtains with hangings and curtains to prepare an extravagant baptism to impress Clovis and hopefully make him join the faith as well. Um, tragically, Ingemar, quote, died after being baptized, still wearing the white garments in which he became regenerate. Oh, God. So he was a, obviously a, already a sick baby. baby. Yeah. Unfortunately, infant mortality is high in these times. Mm-hmm. So just after his baptism, God, it looks he like dies. that killed him. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't look good. So Clovis flies into a rage, accusing the queen of killing their son by baptizing him into the wrong faith. Um, But Clotilda has a strong comeback. She says, I give thanks to the omnipotent God, creator of all, who has judged me not wholly unworthy that he should deign to take to his kingdom one born from my womb. My soul is not stricken with grief for his sake, because I know that summoned from this world, as he was in his baptismal garments, he will be fed by the vision of God. She totally said that. Well, she's, I mean... This is believable to me because the early Christians did have this very strong belief yeah. that it doesn't matter if you die, you live eternally. And, and if you die right after your baptism, you died without sin. Like your sin has been washed away immediately. You can go into heaven. So you can go into heaven. So the baby's not going to limbo, <laughs> basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but this it does come off as a bit cold-blooded from yeah. Clotilda. Yeah, um, like no mourning of yeah. the loss of your child. And this is not the last time that Clotilda will stoically meet the death of a child, as we will see next episode. Oh. Teaser. Children die, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, if you're triggered by a child death, this might not be this podcast series for you, because a lot of children are going to die. Um, so I should get used to it? Should get used to it, because infant mortality in the Middle Ages is high. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> um, and also there's the murders, but we'll get to that. Um, so soon after they have a second son, thankfully, um, Clodomer, and Clotilda manages to baptize this one as well, but this baby also gets sick. And the king said, quote, it is impossible that anything else should happen to him, namely that being baptized in the name of your God, he should die at once. So Clovis is like, he's going to die as well. But through the prayers of his mother... And the Lord's command, he became well. So Clodomus survives. Uh, Clotilda and Clovis have a few more children, um, and they are all baptized, and they all survive infancy. Yeah. Yeah. But Clovis remains stubborn. 
Uh, he continues to worship his idols. And it will take something big and drastic, like, I don't know. A miracle? A near-death experience, something like that, to finally change Clovis's mind. So going back to the war. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got the Goths allying with the Alamanni to pincer the Franks. The Goths regain their territory that the Franks got. The Alamanni um, get into a big battle with the Franks called the Battle of Tolbiac, which is sort of in sort of eastern France. Because um, the Alamanni are in Germany and they're trying to sort of get in and harass the Franks. The battle starts off really badly for the Franks. And Clovis thinks that all is lost. Um, it looks like his army is about to be overwhelmed and defeated by the Alamanni. He has invoked all of the pagan gods and nothing has happened. He's done all of the right, the right rituals to ensure victory in battle, but they haven't worked. Nothing's working. Finally, in the thick of battle, the last moment, Clovis looks up to heaven, quote, with remorse in his heart. <laughs> he starts to weep um, and he starts to pray to the Christian God. And miraculously, the enemy leader is slain. Oh my gosh. And the Alamanni run for the hills. Their king has died in battle. And now Clovis, he kind of has to... I mean, when he was praying, he said, God, if you let me win this battle, I'll be baptized and be a Christian. Uh, He made a promise. Yeah. However, Clovis still needs some convincing (laughs) to follow through with his promise and convert to Christianity. Queen Clotilda enlists the help of Remy, not the rat. Uh, (laughs) He is uh, a very famous French saint. He he was the Bishop of Reims, um, which is a great cathedral city uh, now. And um, so she enlists his help to convert her husband. Uh, But the king is like, hold up. Uh, A lot of my people are still pagan, like my warriors and stuff. And like, they might me up if I just randomly convert. So I'm going to go consult. I'm going to see if they're cool with this. And but little did you know, Remy had already been sort of like mingling with the soldiers a bit, getting the buzz out about Jesus. Uh. And um, his army decided to, uh, 3,000 Frankish men decided to convert en masse to Christianity. So there was a mass baptism um, just chucking water left and yeah, right in the air. At the cathedral, yeah. Um, they got out all the curtains. <laughs> they got out all the curtains. Um, and also Clovis's youngest sister, Alba Flader, is also baptized. Unfortunately, his other sisters have fallen to the Aryan heresy because they've gone and hung out with the Goths. Because remember, one of his sisters married Aryan, the yeah. Ostrogoth king. The other one seems to have caught on with that as well. So the middle sister, Landa Childa, she fell to the Aryans, but Clovis um, gets her to come home and uh, she gets baptized Catholic as well. So now the the um, family is 90% uh, <laughs> the right kind of Christian. <laughs> and around 496, getting close to 500, is the early estimated date of uh, Clovis's baptism, or it could have happened later. We're not mm-hmm. sure. Um so now going back to Burgundy, where things are still a bit dicey. So it's now just divided between the two uncles because the other ones got killed. Um, Gundabad and Godgiesel. I told you Godgiesel would come back. <laughs> Gundabad, who's the bad uncle, is a secret Catholic. Oh. And Godgiesel, who's the good uncle, is an Aryan. So we've got a bit of complexity there. 
But God Giesel, apparently, the reason I call him the good uncle is because not only did he did he not kill Clotilda's parents, but he also, like, apparently assisted with her being kept safe and, like, being educated and stuff. That's nice. Yeah. So God Giesel sends a message to Clovis saying, let's team up and kill Gundabad, or, like, you know, invade his lands. Yeah, so he writes a letter. He says, if you will give me aid in attacking my brother so that I may be able to kill him in battle and drive him from the country, I will pay you every year whatever tribute you yourself wish to impose. So he's uh, like, yeah, he's like... I'll, real generous. Yeah, he's like, I'll be your vassal, basically, if you help me. I just want all of Burgundy, basically. <laughs> and Clovis says, yeah. And... <laughs> you wouldn't with that deal. Yeah, so Clovis goes ahead and marches into Burgundy, and then Gundabad sees this Frankish army coming over the river, and he said, he, Gundabad sends a message to God Giesel saying, the Franks are attacking, come and help me against the Franks. So we've got three armies converging, like who's going to side with who? What's going to happen? Ooh. Was God Giesel tricking Clovis though? Oh, I don't know. No, he wasn't. It was... <laughs> I think that he's the good one. No, they both tricked Gundabad and defeated his army. So this is called the Battle of Dijon. As in the mustard. Uh, <laughs> it, was a very me- it was a very messy battle. There was mustard flying everywhere. Um, they, 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 um, the way. battle actually happened like right on top of the mustard factory. So it was just a mess. <laughs> um, so God Giesel's, um, so God Giesel's Burgundians and Clovis's Franks crushed the army of Gundabad. And the, oh, and this battle was fought on the river Oosh. 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 Which is spelt like ouch. Oh. <laughs> the river ouch. So God Giesel rewards Clovis with uh, both the tribute he promised and a chunk of his lands. Gundabad retreats to Avignon down in the south of France um, or south of Burgundy, I suppose, as it is now. Um, and Clovis sort of let him be. He's like, you just chill. I'll, you can like pay me tribute and I'll leave you alone. So that's what happened. So Clovis is now getting all this tribute from the Burgundians. Mm. It's great. And he's got more land. And we're now about the year 500. Now Yay. reach 500. But things aren't really over in Burgundy. There's a there's another conflict. Um, there's a siege where God Giesel um, attacks Gundabad. He sends men in through, like, the aqueduct. It's really cool. Aww. Yeah, they sneak in through the aqueduct into the city. And um, they... Hang on. No, it's the other way around. Gundabad... See, sneaks into God Giesel's city. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. So Gundabad actually ends up coming out on top, the bad uncle. No, but he's a subject state of Clovis, so like he owes fealty and tribute to Clovis. Clotilda's still a bit mad that like he killed her parents. <laughs> Rightfully so. But she will, she will get her revenge eventually. <laughs> just, just wait. Just you wait. She's going to live for a long time. Oh. So she has plenty of time to get her revenge. So meanwhile, the Goths, Alaric II, the bad Alaric, is getting a little bit anxious about these Franks. Mm. Here's a quote. Now, when Alaric, king of the Goths, saw Clovis conquering nations steadily, he sent envoys to him saying, if my brother consents, it is the de- desire of my heart that with God's favour we have a meeting. Clovis did not spurn this proposal. They went to meet him. They met on an island in the middle of the Loire, the border of their countries, and they talked and ate and drank together and plighted friendship and departed in peace. Does that island still exist? 
I don't know. It's probably like a tidal island that was like mm. it only certain parts. Yes. I don't know. Rivers change a lot. True. Um, but yeah, here we see Clovis being a bit diplomatic. He's not just rushing in, being a barbarian all the time. But this doesn't really, the little kumbaya moment doesn't really do anything because the the uh, second Franco-Visigothic Gothic War starts soon after this. And now Clovis is a Roman Catholic. The Goths are Arians. He now has a reason, like a religious reason to go to war. Because in Aquitaine, sort of south of France, a lot of the bishops, a lot of the Catholic bishops are feel like they're, they're being oppressed by the Arians. So according to Gregory, which, you know, this is Gregory, um, but... <laughs> Clovis needs to come in and sort things out and, like, free, like, liberate the Catholics, basically, in Aquitaine. This war is also called the Liberation of Aquitaine, which it's really the conquest of Aquitaine. But they call it liberation <laughs> because uh, we hate those Goths. <laughs> so this is around 507, and it's a great success for Clovis. Yeah. Clovis meets Alaric in a battle near Poitiers, the Battle of Vouillet. Spelt V-O-U-I-L-L-E. Vouillet. <laughs> and this is a huge, considered a huge founding moment for France. Supposedly Clovis kills Alaric in single combat. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Quote, and when the Goths had fled, as was their custom, King Clovis won the victory by God's aid. So yeah, so the Goths were driven south down into Spain. Clovis takes over most of southern France from Bordeaux on the Atlantic all the way to Rodez on the border with Burgundy. And, of course, he semi-controls Burgundy anyway. So he's now got pretty much all France. There's, like, bits and pieces around the edges that he doesn't have. but um, Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Oh, the Goths also cling on to the Mediterranean coast of France, so the Franks don't really have access to that trade, which would be nice. Um, that, That region's called Septimania. But it's looking like it's a good chunky kingdom now. And it's a nice, lovely France shape. How old was he by this point? Ooh, 507. So he was born in 466. So he's like 40. He's like 40 odd by now. And Clovis also, around this time, uses the authority that he's gained from his conquests and his zeal as a Christian to subjugate the rest of the Franks and bring them all under a single ruler, to become king of all the Franks. And I could go into detail about the various things, but this episode is long enough. Um, Suffice it to say, he finds a reason to depose every other Frankish prince, like one of them because he killed his dad. Like one of them is like, because he didn't come to war when Clovis asked him to. One of them coughed and he was like, I don't like that cough. Yeah. Ragnarkar from the beginning, who like helped Clovis um, with Swasson. Apparently he had like fallen to vice and was like abusing his people. So Clovis used that as an an excuse to depose him. And of course, all these other Frankish princes were pagans. So that was another big reason. Yeah, and they they looked at him wrong. That's fine. But Clovis is really powerful. He can do this. So I had to fight them. Yeah, so by the year 509, Clovis is king of all the Franks. And ring, ring, who's that? Who is it? It's the emperor of Rome. (gasps) Well, it's the emperor of Constantinople. Yeah. (laughs) Clovis received an appointment to the consulship from the Emperor Anastasius. And in the Church of the Blessed Martin, Martin is like an important French saint, he clad himself in the purple tunic and clamus. I don't know what a clamus is. And placed a diadem on his head. So we've got a first crowning of a French king in like... All noble shields. 
Still, there's still gonna be shields. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is kind of more of a Roman style oh. coronation. The quote continues. Then he mounted his horse, and in the most generous manner, he gave gold and silver as he passed along the way, scattering it among the people who were there with his own hand. And from that day, he was called Consul or Augustus. <laughs> Leaving Tours, which is the city that he was in, Gregory City, um, he went to Paris. And there he established the seat of his kingdom. So we've got Paris becoming the capital of France for the first time. Oh, wow. Um, there also Theodoric came to him and pledged fealty, his son Theodoric. So if all of this happened, <laughs> this is pretty huge. So the king of France is becoming recognized as the legitimate ruler by the emperor, the Roman emperor. And a lot of this is motivated by the fact that Clovis is the first big like, barbarian ruler to become full-on Catholic. And he didn't go via Arianism. He didn't do any heresy. He went straight from paganism to Catholicism. And this is the first time that this has really happened um, with a big... No one actually became a saint. Yeah, this is all because of Clotilda, yeah. They were very happy with her. So now that he's received his greatest triumph, Clovis is going to go out on a high because this is the end of his life. Oh. He died and was buried in Paris in a church that he and Clotilda had built together. It's very sweet. Couple. On the 27th of November, either in 511 or 513. Mm. Not sure. Um, and apparently it was of natural causes at the age of 45. Oh. So this is Gregory's final passage um, on Clovis. Quote, Queen Clotilda came to Tours after the death of her husband and served there in the Church of St. Martin, which is Gregory's church. So he's very chuffed about this. And dwelt in the place with the greatest chastity and kindness all the days of her life, rarely visiting Paris. But Clotilda will have some stuff to do next episode. She's not just fading away into the background. She's going to have some stuff to do. So now that we've... Done a little bit like background. Yeah, now that we've done his biography, his life story, we're going to review Clovis. Enchanté. So we are on the Enchanté round now. Yeah. So what are your first impressions of this picture of... Uh, okay. Clovis. So I'll give you guys this quick little description of him. So he's... It'll be the episode icon. Yeah. But just in case you don't have an app that supports episode yeah, icons. I'm just going to give you a quick little description. So kind of like long flowing what, gingery brown locks with a plentiful um, beard I'd say is growing. He has the... He's holding what do you call that? A scepter? A scepter which, yeah. which has the fleur de lis on top. <clears throat> Looks like he's sitting down. I presume he's probably sitting on a throne because it's a king. Mm-hmm. He's got a nice big giant crown on his head, mm. and he has a like the classic red robe yeah. going across. I think the fleur de lis is a bit anachronistic because yeah, bit of a it wasn't really a symbol then. It should yeah. be a bee. It should be yeah, a big bee. <laughs> yeah, lost points when I hang a bee on a man. Yeah, it's not the image I'd imagine him to be. No, like, how did you imagine him? Well, just a bit more like warrior barbarian like type like still show a bit of catholicism in there but like he in the picture makes him look very gentle as though he would never do battle kind of thing i don't know he's got those big eyebrows that are kind of furrowed like he looks like he's about to destroy some goths i don't think so. <laughs> i think he looks it more like you know it's very regal i yeah. suppose but it but also kind of at least it's not clean faced though. Yeah, but to me it's kind of also a little bit, I don't know, boring. Yes. 
exactly. So this like, is this is like a random 19th or 20th century image. I can't find who the artist is. Um, there will be like a series of paintings that were commissioned in the 19th century that we're going to look at for a few of the later monarchs. I, they, I didn't find one for Clovis from that. Yeah. But this is the closest that we get to just, this is like what comes up when you like Google search Clovis. Yeah. So um, I thought I should use this one. Um, I'm ranking this out of 10. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. So we don't have any contemporary images of him, yeah. obviously, apart from like coins, which yeah. don't really tells us anything. There is a carving from the Frankish period that depicts, um, but later in the Frankish period, oh. depicts Clovis's baptism. Oh. And this is actually a big theme. The baptism of Clovis is a big theme in Christian art. So I've got I've got another picture there, which we'll probably put this on our blog. Oh. But like, it's, it looks so like. <laughs> In the giant water basin. This is from a 14th century manuscript. So it's like a little baby Clovis in a little bird bath <laughs> getting baptized <laughs> by probably Saint Remy. Um, and there's like a little dove coming down, anointing the oil. That's kind of cute. Um, and we've got some other depictions. Okay, here we have him dictating the Salic law, which we'll get into what the Salic law is. But um, he looks a bit <laughs> underfed. Yeah, he looks a bit sad and, and emaciated in this yeah. one. He's, like, wearing a robe. It's really thin, like you wouldn't think he's a warrior. Yeah. I think we should definitely go by the first image. Yeah. First um, one's better than the others. Yeah. If we're going to give it out of 10, just because it doesn't live up to what I imagined him in my head. Yeah. With these depictions, I think I'm just going to have to give him a few points just for the beard. Yeah. So I'm going to give him, like, two and a half. Oh gosh, okay. I, have to, I have to open the spreadsheet now. Going to go for two and a half. Put in the scores. Um, two and a half. Ooh. Yeah, it's just. Why the half? Mainly the extra half of the beard. Mm-hmm. He mainly got the points through the beard and those piercing eyes. Yeah, he's, he's got some bushy eyebrows. It's very much like Ginger Santa, but like angry. No, it's like it's like Sistine Chapel God, but like if he was Ginger. Yeah. But he's he's very much like an old patriarchal figure. Like yeah. he's he's the founder of the dynasty, basically. Yeah. But that was a that was a two point five from you, right? Yeah. Um ooh, because we have also these other images, because his the iconography of his baptism is kind of yeah. iconic, I'm tempted to give him like a slightly more generous score. I don't want to go too much high. I'm gonna go like three point five. I think, I don't know. I don't want to give him too high, high score because we're still in that period of like, there's not much imagery from the period. So I don't want to be too generous. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, not, like realistic of what I would imagine. To play. Yeah. Like, like, I don't think a lot of these rulers are going to get above five, yeah. basically. Unless they do, unless their image is like really iconic. Yeah. I don't know. That's a six for Enchante. On God. So there's a lot of really impressive stuff here. But one of the issues with Gregory of Tours is that he kind of oversimplifies all of the wars and battles. Oh, he doesn't, get the detail. doesn't go into a lot of details. It's not like Julius Caesar conquering Gaul, where you get every yeah. single minute detail of every siege. Um, he just says who won and who lost, who was oh. crushed. And like, it's always crushed. It's never like, oh, and there was a bit of a stalemate. It's always <laughs> crushed or defeated or like, yeah, it's always like hyperbole. Yeah. But we see Clovis in his like teens and early 20s 
conquering the entire kingdom of yeah. Swasland. We're gonna get some points for that. Like off the bat immediately in his like reign. He unified basically the whole region. He unified all the Franks. Yeah. Arguably he was building off his father's long and successful reign. But I yeah. think that's to his credit. I don't think that's to, to yeah, his Yeah, like his father really didn't expand the empire that much. Well, not the empire, the region. Like, no. Like, I mean, his like, father was more a bit of a lackey for the Romans. Yeah, and then while well, Clovis then, was a bit but, more like, I'm going to expand. I'm going to, yeah. you know. But as we will see, the Franks' power is very dependent on the personality of the leader. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. So the way the the way that the Franks go really depends on, like, who their top general is. And right now it's really good because it's Clovis and he's doing well. Yeah. Apparently, he almost lost the battle against the Alamanni, mm. but he didn't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> True. Um, and the outcome was that he apparently killed their king. Maybe personally, probably not personally. Gregory likes to say that he that a king killed another king, like in personal Feels combat. Better. Yeah. But they they did have this practice of like they'd be like instead of going into battle, we'll just face our kings against each other. Yeah. So that's a possibility. Save lives. Yeah. Although that doesn't really, that's not really consistent with the, uh, the, the rest. Well, it's not really consistent with the rest of the story we have about that battle, so yeah. it probably didn't happen. But yeah, no, just in the middle of this whole giant battle, there's just a little circle, and in that circle, there are the two kings facing off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and also, even if although praying to God may or may not have been the reason that Clovis won the battle against the Alamanni, <laughs> his new religion was definitely strategically beneficial for yeah, sure. True. Because he got the support of the Roman Emperor and he got to use it as like a justification, justification for war and these wars that he did successfully. Yeah. So that's true. Yeah. Um he also successfully played the Burgundian kings off each other, mm. did a bit of divide and conquer. He probably should have killed Gundabad yeah. when he had the chance. Because Gundabad's gonna have sons and they're gonna cause, cause trouble. But the result ended up good. They subjugated the Burgundians as tributary, a tributary yeah. state. Also, God is apparently on his side when he's fighting <laughs> Alaric in Aquitaine. And we've got some we've got some quotes from this liberation of Aquitaine, which we didn't go into detail about. Uh, when the king came to the neighborhood of Poitiers and was encamped some distance off, he saw a ball of fire come out of the church of St. Hilary and pass, as it were, over him to show that, aided by the light of the blessed confessor Hillary, he should be more... Sorry, just Hillary is a funny name. <laughs> he should more boldly conquer the heretic armies against which the same bishop had often fought for the faith. And he made it known to all the army that neither there nor on the way should they spoil anyone or take anyone's property. No looting. Yeah, so there's this big ball of fire. Totally, babe, a great ball of fire. Whatever the song is. That is like a sign from St. Hilary that says that Clovis will conquer, but he will should not despoil like the, the, the churches and stuff because he's there to liberate the Christians. Oh. Yeah. And then later, uh, apparently after he uh, defeats Alaric at Toulouse, takes all his treasures there, he goes to Angoulême, which is like further west, and, quote, the Lord gave him such grace that the walls fell down of their own accord when he gazed at them. Damn. <laughs> or they were real, They were be- built really shottedly, like yeah. really terrible masonry then going he, on there. Yeah, then he drove the Goths out and brought the city under his own Especially domain. that, just staring at a wall and it crumbles. Yeah. How powerful you feel. 
Yeah. If it happened. Thereupon, after completing his victory, he returned to Tours, bringing many gifts to the Holy Church of the Blessed Martin. So here we get Gregory. Gregory is the Bishop of Tours. He and loves he's happy. He loves Saint Martin. He's, that he's very happy. Day. Yeah, he's getting that money, money, money for the church. Yeah, so this is good. This is a good on guard yeah. score, I think. Um, he started to get all of the Franks. He's the first king to do so. He makes a territory that's roughly now France after like just Belgium, basically. Yeah. A tiny little bit. Yeah, time. which Belgium is much tinier than France. And the Roman Emperor is recognizing him. It's really good. Yeah, he's going to have to rank five. He's like, especially like he'd get over five just for creating like kind of modern day France. Like, at least in terms of rough, like, yeah. ownership. There is the thing of us not having like, like details of battles and things. But in terms of on guard, we're talking about not only battles, but also, yes, selfish wins. This is... Very selfish wins. This is the highest level of personal power that any Frankish king is ever going to have. True that. I'm going to say that out the gate. Yeah. It's downhill from here. (laughs) So he's going to have to get a really good score for this. Yeah. I feel so just because I don't have the detail for the battle Mm -hmm. that I would like, that will... like take away a Reduce point score or a, bit, you know. a point or two. He's going to definitely get above a five just for being uniting everyone. And he definitely gets a point for staring at a wall and making it crumble. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. So it's like it feels like he deserves roughly a seven or an eight. Should I'm I, going above eight, so <laughs> I think I'm going to go. I know. I just like the detail of the battles, just really bugging me. Yeah, how you don't get the like, like the the minutia, like you know, like you don't know how much like it was. Although that kind of history really bores me. Like, oh really? I would love battle minutia. Oh, I love learning about the details of battle. Okay, well, I'll 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 incorporate that more into my research. Yeah. Um, I think I'm gonna go with eight. Eight. Okay. He got five just from uniting. Yeah, the yeah. Brands. And he got one obviously for the wall because. Oh yeah. Gosh. I'm just thinking, like, what did he do wrong? Like, I don't think he did anything wrong. True. There was like the dodgy bit where he was losing the wall with the goth. Yeah, that took away a point. But then he defeated. He immediately defeated the Alamano. Yeah. So and then he took over the goth. So it's like. It was a stumble, yeah, but, but not a was, big stumble. Okay, now you made me think maybe she was a bit, maybe look of nine. I think nine. Will be really, nine. I think I think I'm gonna go nine as well. I just it feels like if I had that just tiny bit more detail, I'm gonna go higher. And obviously, he just has a little like above five just for bloody um. All right, you know, unifying the country. That is an eighteen for on guard. So very good. Very good. Eighteen out of twenty. So now we move on to there are some general good things. Mm-hmm. Um, the not molesting the churches thing is really good. To the church. The, the tolerance towards Christians. Yeah. yeah. Well, people are mostly Christian in yeah. this region. And when he was pagan, being tolerant to Christians was a good like thing. Like, you know, a lot of rulers aren't usually tolerant of other faiths. Yeah. He was like, so, well, I'm conquering this land, but we're going to work together. And yeah. like, it's yeah. not going to be like, you follow my rules or you die kind of yeah. thing. So I think Queen Clotilda is a huge uh, credit to Clovis's mm-hmm. reign. Yeah. Because she is, I'll just, I'll read a quote from Gregory. He's just gushing about, about mm-hmm. Clotilda. So she, quote, showed herself such that she was honoured by all. She was always diligent in alms. Alms as in like giving charity. 
able to endure the whole night in watching, unstained in chastity and uprightness, with a generous and and ready goodwill, she bestowed estates on churches, monasteries, and holy places wherever she saw there was need, so that she was believed to serve God diligently, not as a queen, but as his own handmaid. And neither her royal sons, nor worldly ambition, nor wealth raised her up for destruction, but her humility exalted her to grace. Yeah. yeah. So he's obviously very biased because yeah. his church, St. Martin's in Tours, was one of the big ones she helped and she ended up moving in there and obviously she would have decked it out with a lot of curtains. Yeah. Yeah. Can't forget those curtains. Either. Can't forget the curtains. Hence why she loved, he loves her so much. But yeah, it's not just Clotilda. Clovis is also doing great things. He's integrating the Gauls into his kingdom. The Gauls seem relatively happy to have him as king. Like, it's a bit of stability, at least. Yeah. And he laid down the law and administered justice personally. Um, but Clovis's reign was also marked by disasters, like fires. Oh. There was some desecrating of churches here and there. Maybe, like, he lost control a few times. Yeah. Can't control the whole army. It's kind of hard to make yeah. every single person. There was an earthquake once, which oh. I don't think we can blame on him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, not him. Um, Even though they probably say it's fine with the god. Although, yeah, we did credit him with uh, looking at a wall and making it crumble down. Maybe that was the earthquake. Yeah. Also, <laughs> just been poor building. Good. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Just bad building. Yeah. So the most important thing for Bolivia, though, uh, for Clovis, was he um, issued the Salic Law around 507 to 511, around the time he became king of all the Franks. And what is this law? This law is uh, something that had never been seen in written law because it was a purely Germanic law code without Roman influence. That's nice to say. Yeah. And it was a law that, it wasn't a new law, like the Germanic tribes had had it for a while, but this is the first time it was recorded like in Latin and like integrated with like church law and that sort of thing. So most of the laws are about the appropriate sentence of someone doing a bad thing. So here's a little excerpt. This is um, from Title Three concerning thefts of cattle. If anyone steal that bull which rules the herd and never has been yoked, he shall be sentenced 1,800 dinars, which make 45 shillings. It's that Love sort of thing. That's the, that's the whole. But if the bull is used for the cows of three villages in common, he who stole him shall be sentenced to three times 45 shillings. If anyone steal a bull belonging to the king, he shall be sentenced 3,600 dinars, which make 90 shillings. It's a very dry text. <laughs> it's not like Gregory to it. It doesn't have any drama in it. Oh. We've got other fines that have stuff to do with failing to answer a court summons, breaking into people's houses, sexual assault general assault, wow. robbery, insulting people, wounding people, and, of course, murder. Yeah, of course, murder. Yeah. Let's get that. Yeah. So, presumably, if you can't pay this fine, you get executed. Mm. That's, like, the presumption. But, theoretically, the richer you are, the more crimes you can commit. And get away with. And get away with, yeah. Which sounds a bit like today. Um, yeah. <laughs> Society never changes. But, yeah, so this is maybe not a great precedent if you look at it that way. Yeah. With the Sally law. But it was the law that they, they'd they had. Yeah. And it's really good that... It's written down. It's written down, it's codified, so everyone knows what's up in this new kingdom. Yeah, there's no, they're like, conquered. arguing against because people don't quite know the law. Yeah, yeah. But the mo- well, one of the most important and famous parts of Salic law, which gets brought up a few times in French history, 
later on, way past Sally Claw being relevant anymore, is the fact that daughters cannot inherit land. Oh. Yeah. Well, that's a stupid law then. That already loses a few points. Yeah. So this is going to have huge implications in that this is, by many people, considered the reason that a woman never becomes the Queen of France. Uh, yeah. yeah, he's going to lose a few points for that from me. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. yeah. But it was, this. I think this was the result of this law kind of being taken out of context. Yeah. We'll see it later in like 13th, 14th yeah. century and stuff. But um, they couldn't just change it, could they? No, it was more of a thing of like, this woman can't inherit because of this random law from, from 500 years ago. <laughs> like, it was that sort of thing. We can't make that law, like, invalid. Yeah, yeah. That didn't cross their mind. Um, but through this law code, we can see how intricate and thought out the Frankish legal system was true. even before Christianity. True, true. These weren't just crazy barbarians doing whatever they wanted willy-nilly. These are people who had laws and a justice guidelines. system, guidelines, fines, <laughs> um, all that boring stuff that keeps a country running, really. <laughs> um, so what do we think we'll give him for voulez There's a lot of stuff here. Yeah, there is. So there's the being nice to Christians, there's the stuff that Clotilda did. Always, like, that's the thing, like, at the beginning when he was pagan, he was nice to Christians, but then obviously I feel so, was he nice once he became Christian to pagans? Because remember how he used war as an excuse? Like, because they're like, oh, they're pagan. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, that is the thing, yeah. I mean, we don't have anything from Gregory of Tour about, like, pagan peasants getting persecuted or anything. Yeah, it's, like, hard to know. Because if you use that justification of war, you'd think he then would kill a few. Yeah. Uh, for being pagan. Later kings do sponsor missionary work to, like, sort of outer reaches of the Frankish kingdom. So we know that there are still pagans. Okay. So he didn't obviously persecute them to the yeah. extent if he did. I think, yeah, I think that's the sort of thing where I don't think it's necessarily, like, the king being, like, yeah. kill them all. It's more like a, everyone's just generally being sort of coerced. Oh, okay. Um, because suddenly the people with axes are Christians and yeah. <laughs> you want to be on the good side of them. You don't want to be on the sharp pointy side. Yeah, but there is no genocide. Okay, that's good. There's no crazy massacres. Okay. Um, I think it's going to be a pretty decent score. Yeah. I mean, considering factoring in that it's like a brutal and terrible time to be alive, I would not want to like the fall of rome is one of like yeah the worst historical periods to yeah. be in <laughs> um he handled it pretty well I th- yeah i think he handled it pretty well yeah a lot of this is obviously due to the bias of yeah. the one source that we have yeah but we have to you know take this history as it comes to us otherwise you know we'll be conjecturing forever true so what would you like to do for voulez-vous i know it's definitely above five. Yeah, it's above five. Yeah, yeah. Sure. It's, it's not a nine. I don't think it's nine for me. I'm not even sure about an eight. Um, yeah, I'm thinking like... I'm thinking seven. I was thinking seven as well. He obviously lost a few points for that stupid law to Dornan. <laughs> for you, that yeah. That took a few away from me. But I don't know, just saying about it... I can't keep him. Like, yeah. I, I feel obviously, yeah, obviously looking back on it, it's hard to be like, these are great, all these laws. But at the same time, it's an improvement from like chaos. Yeah. <laughs> in the time period which is taking place, that's why he gets above five. Yeah, exactly. It's just 
I just feel that there's something about it. I can't just give him more. Okay, so that's a seven from each of us? Yeah. Yeah, so that's a 14 for Boulet Boo. Yeah. Yeah. Now we come to your favorite round. Yay! Ooh la la. I may be disappointing you here. Oh. It's hard to find stuff oh. in this category. This is the drawback of like a saintly king. Even when Clovis does things that could be considered kind of dodgy, Gregory paints it in a good light. So it's really hard. So when so when Clovis is subjugating the Franks, the other Frankish kings are dis, are described as his kin, kinsmen. So he is potentially killing members of his own family, cousins. So there's a story where he uh, he sends a message to one of his kinsmen who's just murdered his father, and he says, "Come to my kingdom. Here's a box of treasure," and the guy like. Looks into the box of treasure. And it ain't then, a box of treasure. They, yeah, it ain't a box of treasure. Well, they, I think they slam it on his head and they, they kill him. Damn. Yeah, and there's a few, there's a few stories of like Clovis executing people with it with his axe, but those are like oh, that's administering justice. Yeah. yeah, so he's ruthless, but it's the Dark Ages. Yeah, so you got to be. It's part of the course. He wouldn't have. I don't think he would have been as successful as he was if he wasn't ruthless. Yeah. So I don't think that can be considered like scandalous. Yeah. He has his son Theodoric possibly outside of marriage or with a concubine. He possibly did polygamy, but it was common yeah. among the pagan Franks. Like this is this is when he was before he was Christian. Theodoric was kind of I think I'm fine. Gonna yeah. A zero point five. Okay. Just because. I found it a bit funny how, like, when he was pagan, um, like, how he blamed, like, Baptist. Oh, yeah. I actually wrote, I wrote this down. I said, uh, the, the bickering with Clotilda is interesting, but I wouldn't say scandalous. It's still scandalous. Yeah. It's just, it made me, like, ooh, like, it'd be scandalous to, like, Christian. I did really enjoy reading the passage where Clovis and Clotilda were, were bickering. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but it's not scandal. It's so just... I might actually have to give him a zero. Yeah. I'm going to give him a zero, actually. It's, it's not great, is it? Five. I it's know. Just, I wish we had more, but mm-hmm. obviously we don't, so I'm going to give him a zero, actually. You can't even get that point five. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Clovis. You just weren't devious enough. Yeah. I think... Oof. I don't know. I kind of want to give him a little bit for like killing other Franks, but it's yeah, normal it's time. Yeah, yeah. It's time. okay. Zero to zero. So zero for Ulala. The Fion Throne. So, as king of the Salian Franks, so not as king of all the Franks. This is the tribe he inherited from Childeric. He reigned for about twenty-eight years. Yeah. Just, just with them. Oh, that's good. Um. So he gets half points for that time. Yeah. Yeah. However, he was only king of all the Franks from about 509 to either 511 or 513. So somewhere between two and five years. That was like at the end when he'd done all his conquests and he was like about to go to sleep forever. (laughs) So I think we're going with 509 to 511, which is the date that I've seen the most um, in things. And just a note for the maths we're doing, when it's like an approximate year, I'm just going to go from the 1st of January. Yeah. Um, so he gets 2.62 for the half points for the 28 years, and he gets 0.54 for those, like, 
three years that he was actually full king. So 3.16. Oh. That's the range score. There's the other oh, part yeah, of the yeah, Beyond the Thrones part, score. The... So the Beyond Thrones score, instead of, instead of an Eliza score and a Ben score, it's a time range score and a children's score. And legitimate children. To, legitimate children. We need to get onto the legitimate children. We yeah. are we are counting Theodoric yeah, we'll count as them. a legitimate child because he does inherit a kingdom. Okay, we'll count them then. Yeah. So his family are, he's got Theodoric, mm-hmm. who might have been named after Theodoric the Great, the king of the Ostrogoths, who married Clovis' sister. Yeah. Out of later. Um, but by St. Clotilda, he had Ingemar, who died in infancy, so he's oh, not counted. Not counted. But then he had three more sons, Clodomer, Childebert and Clothar. Love. <laughs> and a daughter named Clotilda. So Clotilda okay. Jr. Oh. Who would go on to marry Amalric, who was a Visigoth king. Oh. Yeah. So this is once they had the peace with the Visigoths. Once the war had ended, they married off their daughter to them. So that's a total of... Five. Five children. After he died? Yes. And that translates through our calculator... Mm-hmm. To a score of 8.44. Oh, that's good. So the total Beyond Throne score is actually 11.6. Oh, rounded up to good. 12 out of 20. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, are we tally up with the final yes, score? Yes, let's total it up. Yeah. The final score is exactly, maybe with a couple decimal points, but it's exactly 50 out of 100. Wow, halfway. Halfway, exactly. Yeah, he really lost it for having no scandal. Yeah, he really did. He that's did. his downfall. But now he must ask the final question. Is he fascinating enough, entertaining enough, majestic and fabulous and irresistible enough to be released from our dungeon, uh, to go to the Battle Royale Championship Tournament and be spared... From the guillotine. From the guillotine. Points for, points against... I don't know, like, points for, obviously, he united it. It's the first time we can say it's France, really. Mm-hmm. And, like, so that's definitely, like, a yes in terms of that. But I don't know. There's just something. Missing? I'm missing. Like, there's something about, like, factor. But, like, in a way, it still feels like I should give it to him just because he did create, in a way, I mean, France. that's some really cool stuff here. It feels like maybe we should give it to him just because he did kind of create France. So yeah, he's like, it. yeah, he's like the William the Conqueror of France. Like, yeah. sure, he probably, he has like kind of a bland hero personality. Yeah, but he did. But he's, he's, he started it. Yeah, he started it. And just because he's not messy and dramatic yeah. doesn't mean, I think doesn't mean he doesn't deserve. The, yeah. Honestly, Clovis is kind of a shoe in for me for being yeah. spared. Okay. I, I think, I'm not sure how far he'll make it in when we do the playoffs. Yeah. But. For today, I'm going to go for yes. Okay. He has been spared from a messy, bloody yeah. chop from the neck. So that's a yes from Eliza? Yes. It's a, well, it's a no. That's a yes. A no is in he's not getting oh, the guillotine. Right. <laughs> it's a yes in that his life is spared. It's a no, you are spared. Um, I need like a better symbol for this on my Excel spreadsheet because it says no, but then that looks bad. I'm going to do, I'm going to do an X if it's guillotine and an O if it's not. So still on. noughts and crosses, yeah, yeah. Um, and but we're not playing the, the guillotine sound effect because he will be moving ahead. He will not be headless. Ooh. Yeah. So, well, I hope everyone enjoyed our very first 
King Clovis. If you have any comments, yes, leave. Yes, great to hear. Thank you to Rex Factor for inspiration. Um, go check out them for the kings and queens of England and Scotland. If you haven't already, if you haven't already, um, go to Totalis Rankium to see what the Roman Empire was doing. Go to Pontifax to see what the church was doing. Um, and go to any of our social medias to see what we're doing or about any of the pictures that we were looking at. Yep. So that's Battle Royale Podcast on Instagram, uh, Battle Royale Pod on Twitter, uh, our Facebook group, Battle Royale Podcast. Join that. And our WordPress site is battleroyalepodcast.wordpress.com. And if you want to email us, it is at battleroyalepod at gmail.com. Yes. Email us with questions, comments, concerns. Tell us what you're excited about. Definitely go to our WordPress site, though, because it'll have, like, some maps and, like, other stuff that, like, kind and of explains things yeah. better. I'll put, like, Clovis's family tree there. And the That'll scores and rankings that we've given me to us time Yeah. So that's going to be au revoir from me. And goodbye from me. Bye.